The second chapter of Genesis not only gives us a look at the seventh and final day of the creation week, but it also gives us some details about the prehistoric earth and the creation of the first man and the woman, which were not given to us in the first chapter. Now, there is absolutely nothing about the second chapter of Genesis which contradicts the contents of the first chapter, as some have erroneously suggested. That isn't true at all, and we will see this, hopefully, as we proceed through our study of chapter 2. In fact, we'll find that chapter 2 actually complements chapter 1. Now, our outline for this lesson, entitled The Seventh Day, and we'll be looking at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 2 of Genesis, is very basic. Our outline is basic, consisting of only two main sections. As we look at verses 1 to 3 in part 1, called Creation Rest, we will discuss the seventh day of the creation week and learn all about the day of rest. And then, in our coverage of verses 4 to 7, part 2, Creation Review, we will get an additional glimpse of the condition of the earth prior to God's creation of man, as well as a description of the manner in which the Lord God actually created the first man, Adam. So, we will begin by looking at part one, creation rest, and under this division, which is verses one to three, we have two subdivisions, the creation completed, verse one, and the creator contented, verses two and three. So we'll begin by looking at the creation completed. And if you would look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, I'll read that for you. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. The first phrase here of verse 1 of chapter 2 in the original Hebrew actually reads like this. And finished were the heavens and the earth. And it's the word finished which is stressed. The word speaks of both completion and perfection. God's work of creation was not only completed, the product of his creation was perfect, as he himself testified, remember, in Genesis 1.31, when he made the proclamation that everything he had made was very good. As we mentioned in our last lesson, this proclamation included the heavens and the earth, of course, and all the host of them. So all the created beings of both heaven and earth were yet, at this point in time, very good. And what does this mean? This means that Lucifer, whom we now know as Satan, and the one-third of the angelic host who rebelled with him against God, they had not yet sinned. It also means that Adam had not yet sinned. And therefore there was no death on earth a point which clearly eliminates any kind of fossils of dead animals or hominid-type creatures existing before the creation of the first man on day six. Now, the phrase, all the host of them, is actually a military picture which presents the idea that all the hosts of all creation were now finished and perfected. And this includes not only the obvious hosts, such as those we just mentioned, the angelic creatures and man and the animals, but it could also include all of the elements and matter and energy and atoms and all the chemicals and gases, all the plant life and the stars and the planets of the universe. All the hosts of all creation had been commanded and ordered into existence. A military type of situation, you know, with, with God being the, the CO, the commanding officer. They had all been arranged and organized, marshaled into their places of existence, and everything was precisely and perfectly 
as God had willed for it for it to be. And when you think about that, that is just an absolutely wonderful truth for us to hold on to as Christians. You know, if you are truly a born-again, Bible-believing Christian and you have surrendered your life and will to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you have this wonderful truth that God always completes and perfects whatever work he has begun. So if you are saved, he has begun a work in you, hasn't he? And that means that he will complete it and he will perfect it. He will complete and perfect his work of salvation in the life of every single believer. I mean, right now, that work is not completed. If you're still alive and in your flesh body, he can look at you and say that you are good. But one day when you are glorified and and you're just like Christ, you will be very good. God himself will declare you to be very good. So isn't that a wonderful truth to hold on to? That God always completes and he always perfects whatever he has begun. And we have this truth presented to us in the scripture. Uh, for example, Philippians 1.6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. He will complete it. He will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. At the time of the coming of Jesus Christ when we are caught up to be with him in the air and then we will be like him. And that's just a fantastic truth. Well, the universe and all that it contains had begun as an idea in the mind and the will of Almighty God, who is the only eternal self-existing one. And then he set about to bring that idea to pass. And how did he do it? He did it by the very word, the very power of his spoken word and he did it in a series of steps or stages which covered a time period of six literal 24-hour days on the first day he created time space matter light motion second day he created the firmament which is our atmosphere which he placed between the waters on the earth and the waters he had raised above the firmament on day three what did he do he separated the waters of the earth which he called seas from the dry land which he called earth and what else did he do on day three the latter half of day three he created all of the vegetation of the earth on the fourth day the lord god placed the sun the moon and all the masses of uncountable stars into space while on day five he created the first living creatures which we called the fish and the fowl and then on the first part of the sixth day god not only created all the many vast varieties of land creatures but he climaxed his creative work by making and creating man in his very own image and likeness. Well, on the seventh day, which we're going to look at in this lesson, God actually created something else. What did he create? He created a day of rest. So a crucial question might be to wonder why God chose to create the universe and the world in stages in seven 24-hour days. I mean, why didn't he just make everything all at once, you know, in one particular moment in time? He certainly could have done that. He could have just spoken the word and everything would have been automatically in place. He has the power and the ability to do that. Or, on the other hand, why didn't he take billions of years to make everything? Well, the answer to this question actually lies in the seventh day of the creation week. God created the universe and all that exists within it in seven days because he intended for man to measure time by days and weeks. 
he intended for man to follow his own example of six days of work and one day of rest. Thus, right along with all of his varied creative acts, God launched a system of time or a schedule for time. All earthly activity was to be measured by days and by weeks, the week, of course, consisting of seven days. Now, it is interesting that men of all generations, of all races, of all nationalities, have always followed a seven-day-week system. Very few exceptions. The Chinese, for example, from ancient times have used the seven-day week. And even still today, the seventh day of the first lunar month is known as the birthday of mankind to the Chinese, a people who don't even believe the Bible, don't, don't bother reading the Bible. And yet they call seventh day of the first lunar month the birthday of mankind. And they have a seven-day week system. Also, in ancient India... And Egypt and Rome and Greece, the seventh day, the seven-day week was a standard thing, a standard unit of measuring time. And scientists have also learned that one of mankind's most basic biological cycles is connected with the seven-day week. And we'll talk about this a little bit more when we talk about the human body. But researchers have discovered measurable impairments in those who are denied one day out of seven for rest, as they also found that no amount of experimental coaxing could alter this seven-day built-in cycle to change to six days or to eight days. So evolutionary researchers admit that they really have no explanation for when the seven-day week began. It's a mystery, except, uh, I mean, there's no explanation for it, this common division of time down through all the ages, except for the explanation which is given to us in the Bible. And, of course, that's because that is the true explanation. God created everything in a seven-day week to set the example for us. Well, let's look now at verses 2 and 3, the Creator contented. Starting in verse 2, it says, And on the seventh day God ended his work, which he had made. Notice how many times we hear that little phrase, which he had made. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from all his work, which God created and made. Three times there we are told of the fact that God created, God made everything. Well, the rest of God on the seventh day tells us two very basic things. We just mentioned that his rest meant that the creation was complete and perfect, but it also tells us that the creator himself found contentment in his finished work. Now think about this. This is very interesting. Just as the seventh saying of the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross, what was that seventh saying? It is finished, John 19.30. He said that after six hours of work, very difficult work, his redemptive work, as he hung there for six hours on the cross. And then his seventh spoken saying, after those six hours of work, was it is finished. Well, just as that saying meant the completion of God's redemptive work, And just as that saying, that seventh saying, brought rest to the Savior and contentment to God, rest to the Savior because he rested then on the Sabbath day. He rested on the seventh day. 
And where did he rest? He rested in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. So just as the seventh thing on the cross meant the completion of God's redemptive work and brought rest to the Savior and contentment to God, because, of course, God was well pleased with, with Christ's redemptive work, so, too, did the Lord's seventh-day survey of all his creative work bring him rest and great contentment for a job well done. And that's a very interesting comparison about the six hours of work and then the the seventh being the uh, completion of that work and rest and contentment because the same one who created everything in six days and rested on the seventh is the one who worked on the cross for six hours and rested on the seventh day. Very interesting because the Lord Jesus Christ is both our creator and our redemptor. There is... As most of us know, great satisfaction in looking over a finished work, isn't there? I mean, all of you who have ever completed a craft or even completed a meal, or I know like when I finally finished our eight-year study of the life of Christ uh, going through the four Gospels chronologically, and, and then you, you have that work completed and you look back over it, there's, there's a great satisfaction and a fulfillment in looking over something that you have finished. Well, the completed creation work brought God the same kind of satisfaction and feeling. And it also brought him refreshment. Not only rest and contentment, but it brought him refreshment. And we know this from the words of Exodus 31:17, where it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. The word, um, not refresh, the word rested in Genesis 2-2 in the Hebrew is the word Shabbat, which of course, when you listen to that word Shabbat, you know that that is the word from which Sabbath comes. It literally means to cease from working. It's also the word that the Jews get their name for seven from, Shabbat, to cease from working. God's seventh day of rest instituted the Sabbath. Now, it's not that God rested. Of course, you know this, I'm sure. It's not that he rested from all of his work because he is involved moment by moment in many other works, such as upholding the entire universe. I mean, if he stopped, if he took his hand off the universe for one second, the whole thing would, would fold up or probably would explode. But rather the idea is that he rested or ceased from his special creative work. In fact, the Hebrew word for work, which is used in verses 2 and 3, is the word malaka, which speaks of a very special job or task. And the special job which God had undertaken was, of course, his special work of creation. And it was from that special task that he rested. And this doesn't mean that God went to sleep. The rest of God doesn't doesn't speak of slumber. I mean, he didn't lay his head down and take a little snooze on a puffy cloud somewhere. <laughs> it doesn't speak of inactivity or idleness. God does not need to rest like men need to rest. I mean, he's God. He never slumbers or sleeps. Isaiah forty twenty eight speaks of this when it says, Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord God, the creator of the ends of the earth fainteth not, neither is weary. Isn't that a wonderful truth to hold on to? That God never faints. He never grows weary. He's always there. 
and he's always working and he's always ready to hear us when we want to talk to him no matter what time of the day or night it is so anyway God's rest was a rest of contentment it was a rest which brought him a quiet sense of peace a refreshment and accomplishment over the exceeding goodness of all that he had created in the previous six days man is to follow God's example of rest in Exodus 20 God extended the Sabbath rest as part of his covenant with Israel however as with everything else sinful man distorted the day of rest and the Jewish religious leaders actually turned the Sabbath into a day of great burden for the people I'm sure it was probably the the least favorite day of the week for them because by the time the Lord Jesus Christ came to earth they had added hundreds of rabbinical and traditional rules and regulations to the Sabbath which had absolutely nothing to do with God's original intention for that day of rest I mean the Jewish spiritual leaders had decided for example that such things as extinguishing a lamp you know putting out a light that that was work and it could not be done on the Sabbath they did, they, they um, discouraged people from looking into mirrors because if they looked into a mirror and saw a gray hair and plucked it plucking that gray hair was considered work it was okay according to them to scatter one seed into the ground but if you scattered two seeds that was sowing and consequently it was work and to do so broke the Sabbath they said that carrying a loaf of bread from one house to another was breaking the Sabbath plucking one blade of grass was work and on and on with all kinds of ludicrous little rules and regulations so there's little wonder then why the Lord Jesus Christ refused to keep the Sabbath rules and traditions of the Jews he went out of his way to to show them that they had turned it into something which God well that he himself had never intended for it to be and he um he tried to show them through his miracles and through his teaching and his words that that things uh, such as acts of necessity, acts of worship, acts of mercy, acts of obedience were absolutely fine to do on the Sabbath day. I mean, according to their rules, they would actually forbid him from healing or ministering or you know showing any kind of kindness to someone on the Sabbath or doing you know doing any kind of a good work and that was just not God's intention for establishing one day in seven for rest in fact we know that the Lord taught that he was actually the Lord of the Sabbath he is the one who created the Sabbath day and he said that man was not created for the Sabbath but the Sabbath was created for man it was to benefit man and give him that day of rest however Oh, by the way, the Sabbath before the Lord Jesus Christ was on Saturday. That Saturday is the last, the seventh day of the week. However, because the Lord Jesus rose from the dead on what day? On Sunday, the first day of the week, the early church, the early Christians, set aside Sunday as the day of rest and worship. And you can read about that in Acts 17, 2, 27, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And this brings us, this subject brings us to verse 3 of Genesis chapter 2, where we are told that God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. The word sanctified means to set apart or to make holy. God purposely set the seventh day apart from the previous six days of work. And we know this 
because he blessed it, which he did not do with any of the other days of the creation week. He also made it holy. He sanctified it, made it holy, which he did not do for any of the other six days. And this is very important because it means that God was giving the seventh day a special significance, which the other days did not have. Any kind of work could be done on the other six days, as long, you know, as long as it was legitimate and um, wasn't evil. But any kind of work could be done on those six days, but not on the seventh. The seventh day was to be blessed and sanctified, to be given over to works of holiness. And as I mentioned before, of course, acts of necessity, worship, acts of worship, acts of mercy, and acts of obedience were were fine works to do. But it wasn't to be a day where you went out and labored just like you did on the other six days. It was to be separated. It was to be given over to the work of holiness. It was a day declared holy by God himself. So regardless of how much the Jews of Christ's day or the people of the church age have abused this day of rest and worship, nonetheless it is still a holy and a consecrated day to God. Therefore, really, it should be a holy and a consecrated day to his followers, those who who love him and serve him and know him personally. Now, as you probably know, many have certainly given the day over to rest. Uh, every Sunday on my way to church, I see plenty of people who are giving the day over to rest as they're preparing their boats to go down to the ocean or to a lake and uh, have an easy day of rest and relaxation. Many have given it over to rest, but very few have given it over to holiness and worship. No doubt, on the original seventh day, think of that very first seventh day of time. Can you just imagine that all the heavenly host, all as well as Adam and Eve, um, because they were there by the seventh day, and all the animal creation must have just rejoiced with God as he celebrated his finished, glorious work of creation. I mean, it must have been quite a day of praising and blessing God for his marvelous creative works and for his sovereignty and for his supreme wisdom and power and his majesty and goodness and his perfection and his love and his dominion and his glory and on and on. It must have been just absolutely one of the most wonderful days of praise and thanksgiving of all eternity past. As the creation, the, crea- um, the created beings looked over what God had done and just worshipped him and thanked him for it. So God set the day apart to be a day of celebration, a day of holiness, a day of worship. Man not only needs a day of rest, you know, when he can experience refreshment physically, But he needs a day of rest spiritually. He needs a day for worship and for praise and for thanksgiving to his creator. He needs at least one day out of seven when he can put his focus on on God without all kinds of major distractions and responsibilities that he has to do on those other six days. Well, that's all we're going to say right now about the seventh day of the creation week. Now let's look at verses uh, 4 to 7 as we turn to part 2 of our outline creation review and under this section we also have two subdivisions we'll look first of all verses 4 to 6 at a review 
of the creation of Earth. This is going to be taking us back over what we've already covered in Chapter 1, but giving us a little bit of a review and adding a few more details, as we'll see. So that's in verses 4 to 6, review of creation, the creation of Earth. And then in verse 7, we're going to look at a review of the creation of man. So look with me as we read verses 4 to 6. These are the generations of the heavens and of the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Uh, Let me stop here for a minute because I do not have this in the notes and I want you to make a note of it somewhere. For the very first time we have a reversal of the sequence of the heavens and the earth. Every other time, well even in the first part of verse 4, we read of the heavens and the earth. And every other time we've read about the creation of the heavens and the earth, even in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the first verse, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, we always have the order for the heavens first and then the earth. But now if you look at the last part of verse 4, where it says, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, for the very first time we have a reversal, and now the earth is mentioned first. Now why do you suppose that is? It's because from here on, God's focus is going to be on the earth. The earth is going to be his primary place of activity. And so we have a transition here in verse 4. We also have a transition in the name that is used of God. It is now the Lord God, and we'll talk about that in a minute. For the very first time, we have a different name for God. So verse 4 is a transitional verse. All right, let me begin again now here at uh, verse 5. And every plant of the field before it was in the earth, and every herb of the field before it grew. See, now this is a review. This is actually before, he's talking here before day 3, before there was any vegetation on the earth. Um, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was not a man to till the ground. This is before the sixth day. A man was not around. Now verse 6, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. As we mentioned back in one of our introductory lessons to the book of Genesis, actually it was lesson number 2, the word generations, which is in Hebrew toledoth, which means literally uh, history or story or account, um, descendants, that word Toledoth generations occurs repeatedly throughout this first book of the Bible, making Genesis a book of generations or a book of family accounts or family histories. Genesis contains the family histories of Adam and Noah and the sons of Noah, of Shem, Terah, Ishmael, Isaac, Esau, and Jacob. However, before presenting any of those particular family histories, Genesis gives to us the history of the heavens and the earth. So all that we have read and studied so far in Genesis, which is chapter 1, has dealt with the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. Now the words when they were created in verse 4 again stress to us that the universe was created. We saw this, remember, in verses 2 and 3, where it repeatedly says, which he had made, which God had made, which God had created. So we have it stressed again and again and again that the universe was created. It did not just happen into being by chance. The truth about the origin of the heavens and the earth is that the Lord God made them. He created them. 
And it also states this in verse 4. And as I mentioned, for the very first time in the book of Genesis, and in the whole Bible therefore, we have a different name for God than the name Elohim. Remember all through chapter 1, every time it says God, it's the name Elohim, the plural name for God, which most links him with his power and his might in his creative work, and speaks, of course, also of his um, uh, being a trinity. Now, we have for the very first time in verse 4 the name Jehovah Elohim. Every time you see in your Bible the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the Hebrew name Jehovah. And here God, the second word, is Elohim. So we have Jehovah Elohim, Lord God, a name which not only connects him with his creative work through the name Elohim, but now, for the first time, a name which connects him with his redemptive work. It's interesting that the very first appearance of the name Jehovah follows the creation of man. Because Jehovah, or Yahweh, is the personal name of God. It's so personal that the Jews wouldn't even say it. Even the Orthodox Jews today will not say the name Yahweh, and they won't write it. They'll just put the first letter and then a line. It is the personal name of God. It is the revealing and the redemptive name of God. So what this tells us is that God here is getting ready to reveal himself to man and to establish a personal relationship with man. And of course, because he knew that man would fall, since he knows the end from the beginning, he was also getting ready to establish his plan to redeem man from his fall into sin and death. So Genesis 2.4 is a kind of a transitional verse between the finished creative work of, of the verses which precede it and the verses which follow up through the end of chapter 3. From Genesis 2.4, from this verse, all the way through the end of chapter 3, we will learn about the early history of man on earth. We'll learn about his initial relationship to God how he became alienated and cut off from God, and how God then began to put into operation his redemptive plan for man to save him from his fall into sin and eternal separation from him, the second death. So in Genesis 2.4, it was time for God to be revealed as Jehovah Elohim. The universe, we find out, then was created by a personal, all-powerful, mighty, creative triune God. In fact, the whole purpose for the creation of the universe was so that the creator might establish a personal relationship with his creation, in particular, man. I mean, if you want the message of of the Bible in a nutshell, this is it. From from Genesis to Revelation, the message is that God wants to have a personal relationship with man. He wants to have a personal relationship with every man, woman, boy, and girl. And this is the message we get from as early as when man sinned and God called out to Adam. He was the one seeking to, to renew his relationship with Adam when he said, Where art thou? And the same message we get all the way at the end of the Bible, Revelation 22:17, where it says, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. 
and let him that heareth say, Come, let him that is a thirst come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. From cover to cover, God is pleading with man, Where are you? Come to me, come to me. I want to have a personal relationship with you. So I wonder, the question is, the personal question is, do you have that personal relationship with God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you don't, you need to settle that today. You need to to do that by accepting Christ's death on your behalf and inviting Him to come into your life, acknowledging His death on your behalf to cover your sin and to make a way for you to be um, reunited with your Creator and to spend eternity with Him. So do that. If you do not have a personal relationship with with God, do it today. Take care of that today because the way to have it is through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and accepting Him as your Lord and Savior. Well, now in Genesis verses two and five, Genesis chapter two verses five and six, we're giving given a brief review picture of the prehistoric Earth, the Earth before man came on the scene. However, it is not only really a review, it also gives us some additional information about the way in which the earth was watered, you know, in the pre-flood earth, how it was watered. And we have really already discussed this when we talked about God's creative work of day two, when he placed the firmament or the atmosphere of earth between the waters below on earth and the waters above the earth. The atmosphere went between those two bodies of water. And we talked about how the waters above the atmosphere very likely formed a water vapor canopy which completely encircled the earth. Now, of course, we can't be dogmatic about this. This is just a theory. But it does make a lot of sense. That water vapor canopy um, water vapor canopy would have provided the earth with a uniform greenhouse type of temperature. So that the whole world was like a tropical paradise and kind of like a terrarium. And also it would have screened out the harmful ultraviolet rays from the sun. And therefore have enabled men and women to have lived much longer. Of course they were originally made never to die, but after, after sin entered the world, they did live extremely long lives relative to today until... Um, that water vapor canopy was removed at the time of the flood. Well, the change in temperature between in this pre-flood world with the water vapor canopy, the change in temperature between daylight and nighttime would have been enough, you see, to cause dew and fog to miss the earth every night. And therefore, the earth would have been watered by that dew-like mist. And this is exactly what we read in verse 6 where it says, but there went up a mist from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And of course it tells us in in verse 5 that it had not rained. It didn't rain until the time of the flood. Now also, so this certainly seems to support the water vapor canopy theory. And according to this theory, the uh, Noahic flood was caused in part by the collapse of this protective water vapor canopy. You know, the original hydrological cycle of Earth was formed by God on day two, and the first part of day three, when the waters of the Earth were separated from the dry land. And this was before there were any plants or herbs of the field. They were not created until the latter part of day three. And it was also before the creation of man on day six, who would 
then till the ground, as we're told in Genesis 2.5. So we learn that the original world had no rainfall. Rather, the daily water supply came primarily from local evaporation and condensation, a mist which watered the whole face of the ground. Also, as we're going to learn later on in chapter 2, there was a system of spring-fed rivers. We read about this in verse 10 to 14. And these spring-fed rivers would supply water for man and the animals and the vegetation. Now, the last verse of our study for this lesson is verse 7. And in it, we will find a review of the creation of man. A review which actually tells us how man was created by God and became a living soul. So let's look at verse 7 where it says, And the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The quick review of the creation which we find in verses 4 to 7 of chapter 2 does not mention God's creative works of days 4 and 5 when he you know, put the sun, the moon, the stars in the heavenlies and when he created the fish and the fowl. It kind of skips those two days in this review. But as we find here in verse 7, it goes directly from day 3 to day 6, the creation of man. Now in the first chapter of Genesis, we were told of the fact of man's creation, that God formed man, created man in his own image and likeness. We were just told that he was created. However, here, in this second chapter, we are actually told how man was created. We are told about the formation of his body from the dust of the ground, and then we are told about the energizing of his body by the breath of God himself. God, therefore, used two basic pre-existing things, we could call them, to make man. He used the dust of the ground, and he used his own breath of life. So what we're going to do now for the rest of this lesson is attempt to consider some of the magnitude of this verse. This is a very important verse in the scripture. First of all, we are told that it was the Lord God, Jehovah Elohim, who formed man. And this tells us very clearly that God and God alone form man. A statement which makes any theological compromise theory with evolution impossible because evolution teaches the opposite. Evolution teaches that man evolved by impersonal forces. You know, a, a big bang and then a sea cell which slowly over billions of years evolved into amphibians and reptiles and up to up the, the, the line until, you know, you got to apes and hominid creatures, half ape, half man, and then men. A very impersonal process. But on the contrary, the scripture states that the energy and the power that actually formed man, created man, was the supreme intelligence of the universe. The triune creator of all that exists. The Lord God, who himself created the earth and all of its substances and then personally used those substances to make man. Now the word for formed is uh, yatsar here. It's a different word than we had in chapter 1, which was a saw, but basically it's the same, has the same meaning. It means to mold or to shape. And it's the picture, here we have more of a picture though, of a potter who has an image in mind and then sets about forming that image with his clay. Now God, of course, is the master potter. 
who had the image of man in his mind. He knew what he wanted, and therefore he wanted a creature who was made in his own image and likeness. So therefore he molded and he shaped man's physical frame. Jehovah God, the triune creator, wanted, as we said, a personal relationship with man. And so from the very beginning, he was directly responsible, personally responsible for the shaping and the fashioning of man's physical frame. And what this tells us, or what this shows to us, is that uh, man has great dignity and honor. Because this tells us that we are the creation, not only of his very own heart and mind, Not only were we made in his very own image and likeness, we're the creation of his heart and his mind and his will. Plus, we are the creation of his very own hands. You know, he put all the stars into heavens, the heavens, the the multitude, masses of stars and galaxies and super galaxies and novas and all the things that are out there. That was just the work of his fingers. But we are the work of his very his very own heart and mind. And not just his fingers, but his whole hands and his arms. So no wonder the psalmist wrote these words in Psalm 8. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. I mean, that's incredible. That just gives such great dignity and honor to us and we are so much therefore above the animal kingdom now it's interesting to note that the scripture states that man was formed out of what out of the dust of the ground and although that may seem to be very untrue you know if you just take a superficial comparative look at the ground the dust of the earth the rocks the dirt and then you look at the flesh of man uh, you'd say, oh, no, that, that can't possibly be true. The Bible is in error. And this, of course, is what skeptics said for, for years and years, that this is just not true. However, it has been verified to be true by modern science. Man consists of the same basic chemical elements as the earth. There's some 15 or 16 chemicals that make up both man's flesh, man's body, and the earth. In fact, if we were going to attempt to make an average size human body, uh, here's a recipe for a man. If you want recipe, you know, a lot of you like to exchange recipes. Well, I'm going to give you a recipe here. If you wanted to make an average size human body, you would need 58 pounds of oxygen. You're writing this down? <laughs> 58 pounds of oxygen, 50 quarts of water, 2 ounces of salt, 24 pounds of carbon, 3 pounds of calcium, and then you'd need a pinch of uh, chlorine, phosphorus, potassium, fat. Some might take more than a pinch of fat. (laughs) You'd need a pinch of iron, some sulfur, some magnesium, and, and a pinch of some other chemicals as well. Now, Dr. Mayo of the Mayo Clinic has has put this rather humorously. He's told us about the amounts that are needed for some of the ingredients for this do-it-yourself kit for making a human body. He said that you would need enough potassium for one shot of a toy pistol, enough fat for seven bars of soap, enough iron for one large nail, enough sulfur to delouse a dog, enough chlorine to whitewash a chicken coop, enough magnesium for one dose of medicine, and enough phosphorus for a few boxes of matches. 
However, as I'm sure you can see right through this, the problem with this do-it-yourself human body kit would definitely be with the instructions. I mean, you have all these ingredients, and now what do you do with them to make a human body? The instructions would be so completely impossible to um, to to fulfill and to create the actual body. I mean, it would be impossible. The human body is so fearfully and wonderfully made <clears throat> that scientists and physicians can only specialize in one small area of it. And even then, they're still learning and they're still being amazed at the just the miraculousness of the human body. I wanted to share the following um, article with you entitled The Six Million Dollar Original. This appeared in Reader's Digest magazine back in 1977, but I thought it was good enough, so let me uh, read this article. It says, quote, Tired of hearing that the human body is worth only about three dollars and of the humbling and humiliating realization that a chicken or a salmon sells for more than you are worth? There's news to heal our bruised egos. Yale University biophysicist Harold J. Morowitz says that the human body is actually worth $6 million, and that price covers only the raw materials. The intricate work of fashioning the material into human cells might cost $6,000 trillion, and assembling these cells into a functioning human body would drain all the world's treasures. And remember that next time that you're complaining about your body, that just to create your body, your, your single body, would drain all the world's treasures. It would take all the money in the world to create you. That's how special you are. The I alone. Now, we talked uh, about a lot of the, the amazing features of the fish and the fowl, and again, we did it with a lot of the different land creatures, so I didn't want to um, not do it with the human body. So I want to talk now about some of the special features. And, of course, we're just going to scratch the surface here, but let's talk about some of the amazing features of the human body. The eye, for example. The eye alone is an incredible structure. Science cannot yet even fully understand how the eye functions. The eye is furnished with automatic aiming, automatic focusing, and automatic adjustment. It can function from almost complete darkness to very bright sunlight. The human eye can see objects the diameter of a fine hair, and it can make about 100,000 separate motions every day, which give us a continuous series of color stereoscopic pictures. And while we sleep, the eye carries on its own maintenance work. And this is just stating the job of the eye, of course, in very, very simple terms, when the truth is that it is so complex and so sophisticated that science still does not completely understand how it operates. So the eye alone, just the eye, speaks of a divine intelligence of creation. Evolutionists are very hard-pressed to explain how the eye came about through a step-by-step trial-and-error evolutionary process of chance and mutations, because, you see, the eye would be totally useless unless it is fully developed. It either functions as a whole or not at all. Piecemeal evolution 
of the eye is a very unreasonable concept. And even Charles Darwin acknowledged this. Let me read from Charles Darwin's own writings. He said this, quote, To suppose that the eye, with all its inimitable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic aberration, could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. Charles Darwin said that. He went on, he said, the belief that an organ as perfect as the eye could have formed by natural selection is more than enough to stagger anyone. End of quote. Just think what Mr. Darwin might have said if he knew about the DNA supermolecules. I mean, he didn't even know about them. But he did admit that to believe that the eye came about through natural selection of evolutionary processes is absurd in the highest possible degree. And he hit the nail on the head because it is absurd to think that. Computer scientists have been trying to build a machine which sees like the human eye sees. And so they have been doing deep research on how the eye works. It's great. Uh, miracle of vision. They have discovered that before one single image is ever sent to the brain, every cell of the retina has to perform a tremendous number of calculations. In fact, every second, each cell of the retina performs approximately 10 billion calculations. That's beyond what we can conceive. Every second, 10 billion calculations. And they're not simple calculations either. Dr. Joseph Calkins, who's professor at Johns Hopkins University, has estimated that the fastest supercomputer in the whole world would require hundreds of years to do what the retina cells do each second. So it is a huge faith which believes that the eye simply evolved. It takes a lot more faith to believe that it evolved than to just believe that God made it perfect. Dr. A.E. Wilder-Smith, who has uh, he's with the Lord now, but he had uh, three earned Ph.D.s, and he also was a four-star NATO general, he made this thought-provoking comment, quote, When one considers that the entire chemical information to construct a man, elephant, frog, or an orchid was compressed into two minuscule reproductive cells, the sperm and the egg nuclei, one can only be astounded. In addition to this, all the information is available on the genes to repair the body, not only to construct it, to repair the body when it is injured. If one were to request an engineer to accomplish this feat of information miniaturization, one would be considered fit for the psychiatric clinic. End of quote. Well, speaking of the body's amazing ability to repair itself, listen to just one small example of self-repair. And this would be one that would be common to us. Pretend that, well, not pretend, but just imagine that you are peeling some potatoes getting ready for dinner. And as happens with me all too frequently, your knife slips, and next thing you know, you've cut yourself. You cut your finger. Well, virtually immediately, a series of very precise steps to repair your finger get way within your body. Of course, all this without you even thinking about it. First of all, the bleeding must be stopped, so while a scab 
is beginning to form over the surface of the wound, the blood below the wound is making yet another kind of clot out of blood platelets and protein. With the bleeding stopped, your body then increases the flow of blood, which is enriched with white blood cells. And these white blood cells not only search out and kill germs, but they also clean the wound of the damaged cellular tissue. Skin cells then begin to increase the rate at which they produce new cells in order to cover the cut with new skin. Underneath the cut, cells called fibroblasts fill the wound to strengthen the new and tender tissue, and they contract so as to pull the wound closed. Then blood vessels and nerves complete their repairs as the fibroblasts position themselves along the lines of stress to prevent future damage. And all of this, all of this occurs automatically, without you even thinking about it. I mean, you're, you're probably busy running to find a Band-Aid while all this is beginning to occur. The order in which these steps to healing take place reveal great, great intelligence and design as well as an advanced understanding of biochemistry. So the process of healing something as simple as a cut finger is actually no less of a miracle than the Lord's healing of of a severed ear. Remember when Peter um, sliced off the high priest's ear, Malchus's ear, and the Lord took it and, and put it back on the man? Well, both the healing of a cut finger and, and the healing of a severed ear are really both very clearly miracles because both are his doing. You could never heal your cut finger. You could put a Band-Aid on it, but you couldn't heal it. So both of these are, are miracles. They're completely the Lord's doing, whether the healing you see is in stages, as with a cut finger, or whether the healing is instantaneous. He is the one who does the healing. The Lord is, in every case. Now, if we were to merely take, let's say, one little piece of human skin the size of a postage stamp, just imagine that one little piece of skin, we would discover that it consists of some three million cells, one yard of blood vessels, four yards of nerves, 100 sweat glands, 15 oil glands, and 25 nerve endings. Every cubic inch of the human brain consists of at least 100 million nerve cells which are interconnected by 10,000 miles of fibers. Can you imagine that? In your brain, your one brain, you have some 10,000 miles of fibers. Yet the evolutionists ask us to believe that all of this was merely the impersonal byproduct of millions and millions of years of chance impersonal chance. However, the Bible has a far better explanation. The omniscient genius of Jehovah God took the dust of the earth and formed and fashioned it into a perfect man. The marvelous intricacy of the human body, you see, testifies to the wonder and the wisdom and the power of a great designer. And it should lead us to worship him to glorify him, to magnify him, to thank him, to praise him. But how many men do not? They just take their bodies for granted and assume that they came some, from some spontaneous generation in some primeval, primeval stagnant water 
billions of years ago. I mean, that is absolutely ridiculous. Well, before we look at the last half of verse 7, where it states that the Lord God breathed into the nostrils of man the breath of life, let's consider just a few more interesting facts about the human body. I enjoy doing this. This is really makes you just really appreciate the, the wonder of your body. Did you know that there is a very sophisticated information storage and transmission system coded into each one of our cells? The system is called our genetic code. The genetic code of each person stores far more information in a microscopic little space than the largest of computers. And in addition, it has a built-in error correction system. There are a number of key enzymes within the cell which have only one job, which is to find and correct errors in the genetic code. These errors can creep into the code because of certain chemicals or radiation or other outside forces. However, these special enzymes will faithfully correct any errors, preventing mutations, the same mutations which the evolutionary scientists have suggested could cause evolution before they discovered this process. A British scientist who has studied these enzymes for years stated that science has no explanation for how this system could have evolved, nor do they know how life could have gone on without this genetic proofreading and correction system. In other words, before it supposedly evolved over millions of years by chance. Now, we who believe in the God of the Bible know that only he could have been wise enough to design an information system which can correct its own errors. Blind chance and natural laws could not have figured out how to create such an intricate system. It's just impossible. One of the most mystifying questions in the science of biology is how a single fertilized cell can divide into many different cells such as liver cells and brain cells or skin cells and bone cells, etc. Scientists are currently studying a chemical which is produced in the human body. They are trying to learn if this chemical plays a part in the development of all the billions of specialized cells which are found throughout our bodies, which all come from that one original fertilized cell. The scientists studying these substances describe its power as almost mystical. Another chemical, which is called GMCSF, that's abbreviated, actually stimulates the development of white blood cells by stimulating the development of bone marrow. This drug has been used in saving otherwise fatal patients who have lost almost all their bone marrow due to radiation exposure. And research is also being developed with nerve growth factor as a possible treatment for those suffering from Alzheimer's disease, as well as for use in reattaching severed limbs. The fact is that these amazing chemicals do not come from laboratories staff, staffed with uh, brilliant scientists. These amazing chemicals that they're doing all this um, research with and finding out all kinds of amazing things that they can do, these chemicals come from within our own bodies. Science, therefore, can only stand in awe 
in amazement and attempt to learn about the magnificent wisdom with which these substances are constructed within us. And this again stands as great argument for believing that we were created by a supremely intelligent creator God and not by millions of years of mindless chemical accidents. Well, few of us probably ever take the time to fully appreciate the almost miraculous efforts which are needed second by second just to keep us alive. Do you ever think about that in your prayer time? Thank the Lord for for just keeping you alive moment by moment. All that goes on to do that. Your heart, for example, pumps about 100,000 times a day, which means that it pumps the equivalent of 10 tons of blood per day. 10 tons per day. And you're not even thinking about it. Your circulatory system then brings that blood to every single cell in your body through a capillary network which is so tremendous that if I was just to take four of you, uh, take the combined capillaries out of four of you, and if I could do this, uh, take those capillaries and stretch them from end to end so that they would touch, they would reach from the earth to the moon. The capillaries of just four human beings would stretch from the earth to the moon. Now, how would you like to do the wiring for that? Just that alone, the capillaries of the human body in the circulatory system. Well, it's also very crucial to our lives that the chemistry of our blood is within very precise limits. Our bodies use various chemicals, and our breathing and our kidneys, in addition to other organs, are necessary to keep the chemical balance of our blood. One example is the precision with which our bodies control the acid level of our blood. The body keeps our blood acid level in balance so that the difference between the highest allowed level and the lowest allowed level is only one one hundredth millionth, one one hundred millionth of a gram. I mean, is that precision or what? That's precision. The circulation system is one of just many bodily systems, you see, where almost is not enough to keep us alive. It has to be right on. It has to be perfect. Almost won't do it. Minute little changes in any one of a thousand different factors would be fatal for us. So if mindless evolution created us by chance, then chance really had to make the whole system absolutely perfect the first time. Or man simply would not have made it. You see? There's absolutely no room at all for millions of years of evolving to finally arrive at perfection. There's no room for a less than perfect circulatory system to take to take just one system. There's no room for a less than perfect any kind of system which would gradually be improved by mutations because the product would never have made it to the improved uh, species. So science itself, therefore, supports the Genesis account that we were created in finished form. We were created perfect the first time. Actually, Adam was the most perfect individual who ever existed. Adam and Eve, our first parents. Well, did you know also that every single second... Millions of impulses are traveling from all over your body at a speed of 150 miles per hour to your brain. That makes you dizzy just to think about it. 
And furthermore, your brain is responding by sending instructions back to the body through this very same system. The nervous system of our amazing bodies is really made up of three different systems so that each one can be more efficient. And here again we have three pointing back to our creator. We have the, ne- uh, the central nervous system, which is made up of our brains and our spinal cords, and it is the switching center for all nervous activities. And then there's the peripheral nervous system, which links our brains to the farthest parts of our bodies. And there's the autonomic nervous system, which controls those things which go on in our bodies, which are done without our thinking about them, like our heartbeat. Now, the brain, of course, is at the top of this vast network. The brain has about one hundred billion thousand one hundred thousand billion I should say nerve cells one hundred thousand billion nerve cells the entire nervous system of just one body therefore serves as another testimony to the creator's skill and his wonderful gift to each one of us our bodies are a special gift from the Lord God are you thankful for your body? I mean, you know, maybe you complain about the way it looks and and the maintaining of it and everything, but it really is a gift from God that you should thank Him for. You are fearfully and wonderfully created. Well, yet another testimony to God's creative skills is the fact that our bodies have many different rhythms. Our body temperature, for example, fluctuates during the course of a day, but it is tied to a cycle of 24 hours, and all this gets back to the the uh, the system of time that God developed for us in the six or the seven 24 literal uh, um, day creation week. Our bodies have circadian rhythms, which are based on a 24-hour interval cycle. Uh, Very interesting. Our blood pressure uh, can also change according to a 24-hour cycle. We have some body rhythms which pass through their complete cycle in a few hours, while others take seven days, and yet others 28 days, which is four seven-day weeks. And again, it's amazing how all of this gives further testimony to the truth of the creation week being seven 24-hour days. Some of our body rhythms are controlled by um, way of the hypothalamus, while the pituitary or certain organs control yet other cycles. The picture uh, is something like a room full of hundreds of clocks all ticking away and going off at their own time schedules. It would really be just a terrible, confusing mess if it weren't for the fact that the brain has a master clock which keeps all of these other bodily clocks coordinated. And this master clock of the brain is known by the initials SCN. At one time, it was thought that it was the hypothalamus which did the work of the master clock. But now it is... It's known that the hypothalamus um, only assists, it only helps the SCN in producing a bewildering array of chemical signals sent from the brain to the rest of the body so that all the bodily rhythms keep ticking along in harmonious order. Bones are yet another amazing creation of God. Although a person, let's say, may only weigh about 130 pounds, yet his or her long leg bone, which is known as the femur, 
For example, just that one bone is structured so as to be prepared to deal with over 1,000 pounds of compression and hundreds of pounds of tension from the muscles which are anchored to it. Therefore, again, it's another indication of God's genius that the normal bone is three times as strong as a good solid wood, and it's almost as strong as iron. There have been tests made which have demonstrated that the tensile strength of bone is 35,000 pounds per square inch, while iron is 40,000 pounds per square square inch, and that, that really is not a whole lot of difference. Yet bone is far better than iron in that it is three times lighter in weight. I mean, can you imagine if your bones were were made of iron or even wood? I mean, if they were iron, you you would rust. Not only would you rust, but you, you couldn't even get around. You couldn't move. You'd be so heavy. I mean, you know, you, you might think you have a weight problem now. Can you imagine what you'd weigh if your bones were made out of iron? So bone is a far better material than iron because it's three times lighter in weight, and yet it is far more flexible. Iron is not flexible at all. Our bone structure is so carefully designed that it could not possibly have been an accident. Evolution, even after billions of years of chance mutations, would still be trying to engineer the best material for skeletons. And in the meantime, there would be a lot of jellyfish blobbing around. Well, throughout our lifetimes, each of us encounter tens of thousands of different types of infectious bacteria and viruses, fungi, parasites, and that sort of thing. And therefore, it is great to know that we have a God-designed bodily immune system, which most of the time disables these potential lethal invaders before we even have any symptoms of infection. At any one time, there are more than 100,000 very special guards or sentries which are called B cells on duty and they are posted throughout our bodies. These sentries identify the invaders, they sound the alarm, they even issue specific chemical instructions for their destruction. They are kind of like an army of tiny little doctors who identify a potential illness, discover the cure and then they apply that cure even before the infection gets going. The immune system has greatly puzzled scientists and physicians, but it again only verifies what the Bible says when it says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 129.14. So the human body is a marvelous symphony of dependent, interrelated parts, each one carefully designed with the others in mind. And as I said before, we've only scratched the surface with regard to the miraculous complexity and yet the beautiful harmony of the human body which the Lord God formed from the dust of the ground. However, if God had only formed man's body, you know, even equipped it with its great, magnificent brain, with those fantastic eyes, with all of the necessary organs such as the amazing heart and the lungs, we didn't even talk about the lungs or the liver and the gallbladder and our stomachs and all of our organs and with all the necessary nerves and arteries and capillaries and the fantastically engineered bone structure and the immune system and the circulatory system and the digestive system and the reproductive system and all the different system it's, it's systems, etc., 
etc., etc. If he had done all this without giving that body life, then nothing would have come of that fantastic creature God called man. The body of Adam, which God formed from the earth, was at first lifeless. It was lifeless. It had to be energized. It had to be infused with life. The breathing respiratory mechanism of man had to begin its function. The heart had to begin to pump and circulate this amazing substance called blood. The metabolic functions of the body had to all start their operations, and that is exactly what God did. As we're told in the latter half of verse 7, he breathed into his nostrils, into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Life can only come from life. Now that is a known and accepted scientific law, which is known as the law of biogenesis. All scientists know that life can only come from life. And we talked about this back in lesson number nine. It's ironic that they teach this law in school systems, but then they also teach that uh, life arose by spontaneous generation. A rather um, unexplainable paradox there. But the law of biogenesis clearly teaches no spontaneous generation. Life can only come from pre-existing life. The living God is the only self-existing eternal being. So therefore, all life must have ultimately come from him. However, to demonstrate the very unique relationship of man to himself, the Lord God did something he had not done with his creation of any of the other living creatures on earth. He himself directly, personally breathed his life and breath into man. And when he did, man became a living soul. Man was definitely made in the image and likeness of God. God is triune. Man became triune. Body, soul, and spirit. The statement of Genesis 2-7, therefore, definitely refutes evolution. And it's very difficult to see how anyone could say that it's possible to bring the Bible's account of the creation of man into harmony with evolution's teaching that man arrived on the world scene only after the long process of animal evolution. Because we are clearly told that God breathed into man life and he became a living soul. It doesn't say he became a living soul through millions of years of evolution. Furthermore, 1 Corinthians 15.45 says this, The first man, Adam, was made a living soul. Now this statement perfectly agrees with Genesis 2.7. It also stresses the fact that Adam was the first man. So not only did Adam uniquely receive his life and his soul directly from God, and not through the long process of animal evolution, but Adam was the first man. Adam was the first man, and that does not that clearly eliminate any kind of pre-Adamite man of evolutionism, any hominid type of creature, part man, part, part ape, Neanderthal man, Peking man, were they the first man? Australopithecus, Ramapithecus? No. Adam, 100% human was the first man. So this eliminates any kind of evolutionary position or any position which attempts to compromise the Bible with evolutionism. Very, very clear. Well, 
Lord willing, next week we will be looking at the Garden of Eden.